Hey everybody, it's Father Edward Looney, the host of How They Love Mary, and I'm honored by how many people listen to this podcast each and every week. I keep making this podcast for you, for the listeners. I'd like to invite you to a very special opportunity to become a part of the How They Love Mary community through Patreon. You can find it at patreon.com slash howtheylovemary. And in exchange, there are two different tiers and there's going to be bonus content, two additional videos each month, and the opportunity to pose a question that I will ask to the guest. I hope that you will help support this podcast, How They Love Mary, through the Patreon With your support, I'll be able to upgrade my equipment. With your support, I'll be able to pay for the monthly web hosting and not out of my own pocket. With your support, I will be able to hire a graphic designer to make images so that this podcast may be better known. Thanks for listening. And now, on with the show for today. Hello, my name is Father Edward Looney, and you are listening to the podcast, How They Love Mary, a podcast that I hope will either be the beginning or the deepening of your Marian devotion. This upcoming Sunday, the last Sunday in Ordinary Time, is the Feast of Christ the King. And if Jesus is the King, we might ask, who is the Queen? And in biblical theology, people like Dr. Scott Hahn and Dr. Edward Sri have written about the Queen Mother, how the mother of the king was always the queen. We see this in the Old Testament. We see this with the book of Samuel, for example. In my own work on the champion apparition in Wisconsin, Mary says, I'm the queen of heaven who prays for the conversion of sinners. And I've loved drawing out that uh, Mary is the queen mother, that she is the advocate, that she is the intercessor uh, for the people. She pleads on our behalf to our king. I thought there'd be no greater way for us to discuss the queen alongside the king of the universe than to talk with Mike Aquilina today about his book with Ave Maria Press, History's Queen, exploring Mary's pivotal role from age to age. Mike Aquilina is a prolific writer and author. Uh, his bio says he's written and edited more than 60 books. And one of his great interests is in the fathers of the church. And he has even co-hosted series for EWTN on that subject. So I'm so happy to be speaking with Mike Aquilina today. Hey, thanks for having me, Father Edward. This is an honor. Well, great. And I'm, I'm friends with you on, on Facebook. And so I've seen that you've been making the circuit with this book and, and talking about it with so many others and... I I know a lot of people with podcasts that they've been moving to a video platform, they're recording video. Uh, I'm just not there yet. I think that's a little too much for me to take on. I like the audio version. I I listen to lots of podcasts myself, but I don't listen to the the videos. I always listen through Apple Podcasts. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah. so I've been able to see some of your interviews uh, through Facebook, and now happy to have the opportunity myself, and perhaps to do so kind of with a specialty in the sense that I'm a Marian theologian, and that we can unpack your book about history's queen. And, you know, one of the first things that as I opened your book, as I read the introduction, it was something that I actually shared on my mother's anniversary of death. Uh, I, I shared an excerpt from your book, and I thought maybe it'd be a good way for us to begin our conversation that you write, 
Your own individual mother is also always with you, even after she has left this life. The things she taught you, the experiences you had with her, even just the feeling of being next to her, these things stay with you for the rest of your life. And um, I'm not sure if your mother is still with us or not, but I guess maybe the first thing, hearing that quote and reflecting on it for my own self with my own mother and her passing, what are some of the things that your earthly mother taught you? Everything. Uh, you know, I think my my earliest memories of her are of her cleaning our little apartment in uh, in Pittston, Pennsylvania. We lived in a little coal mining town. Um, and uh, And I can remember her going around with her duster cleaning behind radiators, you know, the old-fashioned radiators that made a lot of noise. And she had the the duster or the rag in one hand and her rosary in the other. Now, I don't know whether she was ever, in all those years, able to get through all five decades at a pop, but I do know that the rosary was so important to her. I, I, I remember the rosary in her hand when I sat on her lap. I remember her praying the rosary um, in our parish uh, the Blessed Mother was an important part of our home. Images of the Blessed Mother were there in the house. Um, and uh, and she was just always a presence. My mother, whose name was Mary, uh, had a deep devotion to her and uh, and transmitted that to her children. You know, we're, I, think, I think we're all praying the rosary these days. Yeah, especially these days. And, you know, the rosary is a devotion for so many people, and uh, they've prayed it for years. You know, I think of some of the people that were just at Mass that I celebrated in my parish church, and how many of them have been praying the rosary faithfully every single day of their life. And it's, uh, but I think too, right now, especially because of the COVID 19, so many people are turning to the rosary. And people turn to the rosary, too, that maybe they don't pray it all the time, but when there is an emergency in their life, when someone is sick, that's always kind of their go-to prayer. They gather around together as a family, and they pray the rosary for that sick person. So uh, that's great that your mother uh, taught you and handed on that devotion, and it's with you today. One of the things, too, as we celebrate the Feast of Christ the King, it's the last Sunday in Ordinary Time. We are making slowly our transition into the Advent season, and the Advent season is all about awaiting the coming of Jesus. Yes, at the end of time, but as we go towards Christmas. And one of the things you draw out very early in your book is the longed-for birth and how that we see it in the Old Testament and how we see it you know, in the New Testament. Could you just maybe speak about our Advent waiting, this long-awaited birth, and uh, what that means for our Advent celebration. Well, th this isn't some kind of backup plan. You know, our, our uh, God had this in mind from the beginning of time, and we see that in the creation story, where we we have Him foreshadowing, foretelling um, the, uh, the the coming of a Messiah who would be the seed of a woman. Now, the fathers of the church seed of a woman change because seed comes from the man. And yet, he's talking about, uh, you know, the Messiah coming, who would be the seed of a woman. A very strange phrase, but it plays itself out in history. And throughout um, throughout the Old Testament, throughout the, the history of uh, the patriarchs, and then um, and then the history of, uh, of, of Israel as a nation, we see uh, the, the, the coming Messiah foreshadowed in so many ways. And often, um, accompanied by these other types uh, that um that that foretell his mother okay you mentioned the queen mother and the work of um scott hahn and and edward Shree. 
And that's a, that's a great uh, anticipation of the role of the Blessed Virgin Mary in salvation history. It's not there in its fullness, but it's there in a partial way so that it will be fulfilled in Mary. Um, uh, Bathsheba, as she interceded the throne of her other son, Solomon, um, was not so successful. But then when we see the type of the Queen Mother fulfilled in the New Testament, we see that Mary's infallible in her intercession. So there she is at the wedding feast at Cana, and um, and she intercedes on behalf of this couple who are embarrassed by this situation. And her son goes so far as to advance the moment of his uh, of, of his ministry. He, he says his hour had not yet come, and yet he's willing to advance that hour for the sake of his mother in order to fulfill her request. She's infallible in her intercession because she's his, she's his mother. She's the queen mother. She, she, she rules as both queen and mother in history and in our individual lives. Yeah, as we think about the long-awaited birth, uh, so many different things in the Old Testament. These people had a great longing, for example, for children and uh, that they were yes. barren. And then eventually, though, by their prayers, we think of Hannah and how she prays for a child and God answers her prayer. Or in the tradition with Anne and Jochum, they're praying for a child. Or Elizabeth, how the angel says, your cousin who was barren now is with child. And so these people had a great expectation and the Jewish people had this expectation for the coming of the Messiah, this longed for birth. I think one of the prefaces of the church says, you know, with love, waiting with love beyond all telling or something like that. But that's really what we're, entering into as we go to Advent and and begin that mystery of Advent is that Christ's birth is long awaited and then on Christmas Day it's fulfilled because Mary said yes at the Annunciation because she became the mother of the Savior, because she became the Queen Mother. And the Gospels do a good job of reviewing this as they, as they uh, you know, St. Matthew's Gospel begins with that genealogy where it goes through the Old Testament calls a lot of those names that you mentioned. Uh, we find something similar happening in St. Luke's Gospel, and, and both of those um, kind of lead up to the story of the Blessed Virgin. Take us into that story from all the history of Israel that had preceded. One of the things I love about one of your chapters is called The Mother of the Fathers, and um, you're an expert, really, on what we would call the patristic age, on the fathers of the church. But, you know, some of the people who are listening, I know some of my parishioners listen to the podcast, other people in the Catholic world might not exactly understand who the fathers are. And so could you share just who the fathers of the church are and maybe even what compelled you to start studying them? Mm. Well, the fathers are the great teachers of the ancient church. You know, we have many great saints from those early centuries, but the fathers were specifically those whose teachings have endured down through the thought to, uh, to publish something then. There was no printing press, no mass media, certainly no podcasts. Um, uh, the, uh, the fathers, though, uh, preached in such a way, taught in such a way that their people wanted to remember their words forever and were even willing to risk their lives to preserve those words because during those first three centuries, it was illegal to own a Christian text. You could be put to death 
for owning a Christian text. And yet, these writings of the fathers were written down and copied over and over and over again at great expense and at great risk to the lives of the Christians who lived back then. Well, the fathers' teachings have endured down to our own time, and the church looks to that era and those teachings as especially authoritative in establishing doctrine, in developing doctrine. We see how those first interpreters of the gospel did their interpretation, and we learn from that. We follow it. Uh, we, we imitate it. Now, some of the fathers of the church uh, had a great devotion to Mary, or they handed on the devotion. And we see that very early on in the church, that one of the very first received teachings about Mary was Mary as the new Eve. And we see it in the writings of three different people, Cyprian of Carthage, Tertullian, and uh, uh, Justin Martyr, and Irenaeus. Um, And as they're writing about Mary as the new Eve— All of these individuals lived in different continents. They didn't talk with one another, but yet they're unpacking the same theology about Mary as the new Eve, which shows that the church from the very early age was already reflecting about the Blessed Mother. (laughs) Absolutely. And even before those early fathers, if we go into the the, the scriptures themselves, we find that St. Paul, in his letter to the Galatians, cannot tell the story of the gospel without mentioning the mother of the Messiah. Just to get that in there, because it's an important detail. Mary's motherhood is is the great um the the great protector of um of of our Lord's divinity and his humanity. It's the great proof of both his divinity and his humanity. And we find, you know, the 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 uh, the presence there again in uh, in the book of Revelation, where our lady is a centerpiece in this this earliest Marian apparition reported uh, when she she appears to Saint John in the heavens as um as a uh, as the the Ark of the Covenant within the heavenly temple. Uh, it continues into the first century, so that some of the earliest Christian documents are there to present Mary for apologetic reasons, but also for devotional reasons. In 70 AD, we have the Ascension of Isaiah, a document of, of, uh, of Egypt, and it's there primarily to tell the story of the virginal conception and virginal birth. So we see this is in a devotional interest of the very earliest Christians. And then one of the bestsellers of the early church, uh, which was titled The Gospel of Mary, today we know it as as the Proto-Evangelium of James, um, but it's, it's really a novelistic retelling of the life of the Blessed Virgin Mary. Now, the church never canonized that book. The church never gave its guarantee on the historicity of, of, that, um, of that narrative. But, in that book and its early popularity, extreme popularity, we see that there's an intense interest in the Blessed Virgin among the earliest Christians. There's an intense devotion to her, and it's evident in other places too. Ignatius of Antioch cannot tell the story of the gospel without bringing up the Blessed Virgin Mary, because again, he's intensely uh, interested in establishing our Lord's divinity and his humanity. He's keeping that balance. He's keeps the Virgin Mary is the is the um, is the way he's able to do that. One of the things about Mary and our understanding of Jesus is that sometimes in the early church we see this that heresy begins to erupt. And you you had a great line in the book. You said that sometimes people would attack Jesus by insulting his mother, but sometimes too when it came to Christology. 
or some of these heresies about who Jesus was. It was coming to understand who Mary was in relationship with Jesus that would help to correct the heresies. But maybe what were some of the early heresies uh, in the church that had to be corrected? Oh, well, well, we have we have um, we have heresies, uh, you know, like adoptionism, which said which which says that that our Lord was simply human at the beginning of his life and was adopted later on into divine life uh, the way we are. And he was just the first chain, the first in a long, a long uh, chain of, uh, of people who would be adopted into divine life. Um, that was an early heresy. And of course, that changes the um uh, uh, the 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 role of Mary, you know, she's no longer the mother of God. She's only the mother of His human nature, and there's a full flowering of that um, with the rise of the Nestorian heresy in the fifth century. Now, Nestorius was a very intelligent monk uh, of evident piety. Um, he's taken from Syria to become uh, the uh, the the bishop of Constantinople, and there. Uh, he he starts to uh, to teach in ways that his people found offensive. Okay, he was a verbally fussy man, kind of like Felix Unger from The Odd Couple. You know, he he uh, he liked things to be exact and precise, and he whenever he talked about Mary, uh, uh, he cringed at the phrase "mother of." Now, this phrase had been in use by the church since at least the beginning of the two hundreds, and here he is in the four hundreds saying. I wish you wouldn't say that. Well, it's baked into all the hymns that these people had learned. It's baked into the prayers that they had been taught by their grandparents. It's there in the church documents going back that far, and he's telling them not to do that anymore. So the people rebelled. And uh, and and in order to make peace, to restore peace, the emperor called uh, the Council of, of Ephesus. And uh, it was the Council of Ephesus that condemned the false doctrine of Nestorius, that Mary was simply mother of our Lord's human nature uh, and not his divine nature. St. Cyril of, of Alexandria, who was the great opponent of, uh, of Nestorius, pointed out that, that a mother doesn't give birth to a nature. A mother gives birth to a person. And in this case, the person had two natures. That's, that's clear from the text of the Gospels, and it's clear throughout tradition, and Cyril establishes that by by uh, laying out a chain of teachings, a catena in Latin, um, a, a chain of teachings that showed um, how, how this was taught within the Church for centuries by the time of the Council of Ephesus. Now, much later, when Protestants tried to undo the Marian teaching of the Church, they, they said that Marian devotion began with the Council of Ephesus, which is just not true historically, and it uh, it that 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 argument just crumbles under under the documentary evidence because Ephesus simply crowned the Marian teaching of the earlier fathers, going all the way back to scriptures, as I said, but continuing through uh, the great teachers like Ignatius of Antioch, Justin Martyr, Irenaeus of Lyon, uh, uh, Tertullian, as you mentioned, Cyprian. Uh, um, it's not a local phenomenon. It's not a passing fad. It's consistent over time, and it's consistent from place to place. Christians love our mother. We Christians love our mother. We love the Blessed Virgin. You have a chapter in the book that I think was very fitting uh, for our time, especially 2020, because 
our world is shut down, people are afraid to go out, uh, and you have a chapter, it's chapter six, called The Plague and the Pieta. And so right now we're in this middle of this health pandemic and with the COVID-19 and everything, and there have been plagues throughout the church's history. I'm very blessed uh, to live uh, where I live in Wisconsin, in Door County, and we have roadside chapels. So the Belgian immigrants that settled here, a custom of theirs was to build roadside chapels. And for some odd, peculiar reason, there is a chapel to St. Rock down the road from where I live, three miles from where I live. And St. Rock is the patron invoked during times of pandemics or plagues. And so I've learned a lot about the plague and the life of St. Rock. And you share a lot of the history about plagues, especially the the plague in the 1300s. And um, just kind of the response of the people in terms of their piety and their devotion. Now, the plague, as you recount its history, was devastating in terms of how many people died and, um, you know, populations were decimated by it. We're not seeing that same decimation right now, even though deaths are on the rise. Lots of people are recovering, but the plague back then was almost an immediate death sentence. They knew they were going to die I even think that the Hail Mary, pray for us now and at the hour of our death, was actually added during the time of the plague. And so um, as you researched that, as you wrote about it, what was Mary's role during the plague then, uh, long ago? And what's her role today? What role can she play during COVID-19? I guess if there's a single point in my book, is it's that history is a series of crises, uh, just like family life is a can be viewed as a series of crises. These many uh, things that we we undergo as a, as a household or as a people down through the centuries, we face challenges, uh, we face joys, we face sorrows, um, and uh, and we overcome these things. We we move forward through them. Uh, one thing that that uh, that we know from family life is that our mother is always with us. Now, some people do have kind of uh, uh, troubled relationships with their mothers, but even they know that this isn't the way it should be. My mother should be with me in these moments. And so, you know, family life itself is a witness to this. And and as I said, history is, is a mother is always with us. Now, she manifests herself to us in different ways, culturally, down through the ages. And what we see happening there in the 1300s is our mother manifesting herself to us as someone who shares our sorrow, shares our grief. As you point out, entire villages were just wiped out. Entire monasteries just wiped out. Everybody killed by the plague. And so you can, we can't imagine that kind of grief um, where, where everyone is suddenly gone. Everyone in your life is suddenly taken away from you. It's, it's, uh, it's the experience of Job in the Old Testament. And so Our Lady uh, comes to her people in that time as as a great consolation. Uh, she's not just speaking words from outside in a condescending way. She is sharing with you an experience that, that she herself has undergone. And so the, the image at that in church art of the Pieta, of the of the mother the sorrowful mother holding the body, the dead body of her son. And, and this so resonated with people that these images just proliferated uh, across the continent. They were everywhere in those, those, those century, the, the century of plague, really, that Europe suffered. 
And today, as we look at the COVID-19 and kind of the, the deaths that we've seen, you know, one of the nursing homes that a lot of my parishioners are at, they had 21 residents. Every single resident came down with COVID-19. Huh? Six of them died. So, you know, you think about just a nursing home. In a sense, they experience kind of a miniature of this plague. And so um, I just... Thinking about COVID-19 and how we invoke Mary now, I, you know, I do think people are turning to the intercession of Mary. And Pope Francis wrote that very beautiful prayer, uh, calling upon Mary's intercession. And I think that's something that we just hold on to now is that Mary's prayers are with us, that she is with us and praying with us. She's interceding for us. And that's really her role right now during this time of our own little pandemic uh, of 2020. Uh, as you go through your book, uh, the last three chapters have a language that kind of is militaristic. You talk about mm-hmm. victory, revolutionary, and battle. And uh, you do interplay some Marian apparitions in there, I noticed, uh, with victory, Our Lady of Guadalupe you brought in. And of course, there's the, the great Battle of Lepanto where where the Christians prayed the rosary and there was success. And then you have the revolutionary and your battle section actually is about Fatima and maybe taking your cue from Sister Lucia, who said that uh, one of the last great battles of our time would be between marriage and family. And so maybe you take that cue there. But how is it that Mary can aid us in our own spiritual battles? Well, in that chapter, I tried to evoke um, one of the, the military songs from, from the early 20th century, and that's uh, just before the battle, Mother. It's addressed to uh, someone's mom, a soldier's mom far away. And, and, and I, want, I wanted to emphasize there that the mother is with her with her child uh even in the midst of battle uh even or especially in the midst of battle that uh that a soldier finds um finds comfort in his mother's constancy that he can rely on that he can depend on the mother and uh and of course you know the the fatima apparitions uh take place in the midst of world war and in the midst of 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 a just beginning revolution that lasted so many millions of lives, uh, the communist revolution, um, uh, the earlier revolution, uh, the French Revolution, was was almost a a parody of Christianity, uh, where where the goddess reason was was put up in place of the the Blessed Virgin Mary and and the. Uh, the cathedral, the basilica of of Notre Dame, was uh, was co opted for the worship of the goddess Reason. Um, so you find Mary as the antithesis of these earthly battles, these material battles, um, and she is she represents the spiritual battle that we're all in the in in the middle of, uh, even as we fight these earthly battles. Um, what's interesting is that is that the revolutions come and go, the world powers come and go, and yet the, the, the teaching of Mary remains. My mother was born in 1916, so she was born just before the Fatima apparitions, and she grew up with of her inner life. Uh, they were very important to her, much more important to her than they were to me. Um, but she knew them, and she knew them with an expectation that they would be fulfilled in many ways in her lifetime. And she saw that over time, her predictions came true. The The Blessed Virgin's predict, predictions came true. Well, the predictions of the communists, they didn't do so well. The predictions of the Nazis, they didn't do so well. 
they kind of flamed up and flamed out. But the, the Virgin of Fatima uh, remained uh, true. Uh, her teaching remained true, and, and it was kind of a, a, a North Star to guide her people, her children, her family uh, down through this most difficult century and into our own today. Um, so Fatima was something was something uh, remarkable uh, for for its language, which was which was strong. The images, which were were strong, were delivered to little children. You know, we try to hide uh, uh, scary images from little children, but she shared them so that children themselves could teach the world with the credibility that um, a credibility and a purity that adults would lack. As you wrote the book History's Queen, exploring Mary's pivotal role from age to age, what was your biggest takeaway from your research, from your reflection, from your writing on this topic? Oh, my. Well, uh, my, my takeaway is this, that I can have confidence in her. And, of course, I express confidence in her uh, more than a hundred times a day, you know, when I'm praying the Hail Mary and, and I say, you know, pray for us now and at the hour of our death. And I do that over and over again throughout the day and from day to day over the course of years. I'm, I'm expressing a certain confidence that if I ask her me at the hour of my death, she's going to be with me through the worst I'm going to encounter in life. And that's been my experience through the 57 years I've been alive. Uh, uh, maybe uh, I didn't have the same confidence when I was young, but I've gained it over time and I've known it uh, personally over time. I really enjoyed your book, History's Queen from Ave Maria Press. And, you know, I really like it for a few different reasons. Uh, it's a lot different than, you know, Yaroslav Pelikan wrote uh, a book about Mary throughout the centuries, and so kind of uh, cataloging Mary throughout history, and, and Hilda Grafe wrote one too, but yours is very accessible. Pelican and Grafe, they are writing more probably for an academic audience, but you're writing for the common person. You are actually teaching people Catholic history, Christian history, and Mary's role in it. So if you really want to look at history from the time of the scriptures all the way to present day, this is a great read, especially to do so with a Marian perspective. So I can't recommend it enough. In fact, I'm teaching a, a class of deacon candidates tonight uh, through Zoom or Microsoft Teams or whatever. And at the end, I'll be giving them a list of you know recommended reading that they can just read that's not scholarly, that can help them to understand Mary's role in, in, in the Catholic life. And I promise that your book is going to be on that list. Well, thank you. I'm utterly dependent on the scholars you mentioned. Uh, uh, the work is just wonderful, but but I like to tell stories, and I think people like to hear stories, and and that's the, I think it's the most effective way to teach history is by telling people stories and helping them to see their place in those stories. Yeah, it's a very accessible read, and you will not be bored by the historical stories you tell. So before I let you go, uh, Mike, I would like to maybe just build with you a little Marian profile. And this is a segment that always just helps people realize that everybody's devotion to Mary looks different. And so as we learn from other people, well, maybe we begin to incorporate something into our own life and into our own devotion. So... The, the very first question is about Mary's titles. She's a woman of many names. You have queen in the title of your book, but what would be your favorite title or a common title of Mary that you invoke? My mother. My mother. 
because it's uh, it's comforting to me, um, and uh, and and it's rather remarkable that I can I can know that the God I worship is my brother because we share the same mother. You know that He's given everything to me because. Uh, he's he's taken me into his family, and so I share his table in the Eucharist. I share his home in the church, and I share his mother. And I go to her, and uh, and and try try to um, try to follow her as faithfully as he did, uh, which is a remarkable thing to think about. That that uh, we see in Saint Luke's Gospel that he went home and he was obedient to them, to Mary and Joseph. That's a remarkable thing. Um, so I'm 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 called to uh, to be her little child obedient to her the way Jesus was. As Catholics, we make use of sacramentals. We wear sacramentals. We might carry them with us. Um, is there a sacramental that has great meaning for you? Oh, yeah. There are lots of them, especially related to Our Lady. Um, there's the rosary, of course, and I, I, I usually have one with me. Uh, there's the, the brown scapular. Uh, this one actually was given to me by my mother, who's who's been dead a number of years now. Wow. But uh, it's still it's still intact, and uh, and I'm I'm able to carry it through. Um, and and Marian images. My wife is very fond of Marian images. She's a convert to the faith, and so our home is full of them. And place in the house um, where I can sit and not see an image of the Blessed Virgin Mary and look to her and say, "My mother." Beautiful. Now you talked about the rosary and praying the rosary and. Lots of people sometimes struggle with the rosary devotion. They might say, it's long, I don't understand it, why do I have to keep praying the Hail Mary, it's repetitive, all these things. But is there a tip that you could offer that would help people pray the rosary better? Uh, stay with it uh, for the long haul, because it, it takes some adjustment to get into it. Um, my wife, this was her experience over time. Uh, it was very strange to her, uh, you know, coming from a Protestant background, adjusting to Marian piety, but over time she got into it, and as I said, she got so into it that that our house is decorated the way it is. I can remember when we made the decision uh, many years ago to do the family rosary, and at first, our, oh no, this is terrible! It's so long, um, and, but we kept at it, and it got to be just a normal part of family life. So much so that when Pope John Paul II introduced the luminous mysteries. Um, and we kind of just, my wife and I just started the rosary that night with the luminous mysteries without explaining it to the kids. I think the kids thought we had fallen into heresy or something because we had broken the pattern. Uh, that we had done something they were unaccustomed to. Um, uh, so, uh, so they were they were looking at each other across the room and uh, and and looking at us like we'd gone crazy. So. Over time, it just becomes part of you, but you have to give it that time. Give it a year. Give it two years, and you'll see that that you get better at it. It's like playing the piano. It's like doing anything else. That's great. I love that. That's a, a wonderful soundbite that you just gave. I might make use of that <laughs> in the future. But there are lots of different prayers in our Catholic tradition that people have written, that saints have written, that have been handed on to us. As a person that's just written a whole book about Mary and history, you've probably been exposed to a lot of different prayers to Mary. Is there one that has made an impression on you, one that's kind of your go-to prayer? I don't know why, but it's uh, it's it's the words of an old hymn. Mother dear, oh pray for me, while far from heaven, from heaven in thee, I travel in a fragile bark, or life, or life's tempestuous sea. You know, those words, I don't know why, um, 
came to me when I was very young, and they've just stuck with me. And I, I tend to go into those if I'm if I'm feeling uh, troubled, disturbed, uh, frightened, or anything, or anything. You know, mother dear, pray for me while far from heaven and thee. I travel in a fragile bark or life's tempestuous sea. That's great. You have it memorized. And that's, you know, we do that a lot of times with songs that we memorize those yeah. lyrics and, and they really have an impact on us. That's what St. Louis de Montfort did. He taught people songs in order to communicate the truths and then they would sing them and they would know what they believe. Yes. And this is the way the ancient Christians uh, gave honor to Our Lady as well. And I think that's why Nestorius ran into the resistance that he did because those songs were so ingrained taught by mom, taught by grandma, taught by, by dad, taught by grandpa. And, and, and they, he could not shake loose the Marian piety that, um, that welled up when they called her mother of God. There are lots of different uh, references to Mary in the scriptures. We know that there's lots of kind of foretellings in the Old Testament. Then we meet Mary in the Gospels and also at the very end in the book of Revelation. Is there one of these Marian passages, maybe something she says that is just something that resonates with you? Do whatever he tells you. Uh, that kind of defines it for me. And uh, and I love that scene of the wedding feast at Cana too, because it shows her to be infallible in her intercession for us. Um, and, and it shows her her pivotal role. Uh, you know, St. Luke, the Annunciation in St. Luke shows us uh, that role and how it how it began, but um, but it's the wedding feast at Cana that shows us how it continued throughout their shared life, and how it continues even today in history. Her role as history's queen is evident in that moment, in that wedding party uh, that she attended with her son. In your book, you reference several of the Marian apparitions, Guadalupe, uh, Fatima. You talk about Cabejo in the very last chapter. Uh, is there a Marian apparition? Maybe it's one of those. Maybe it's a different Marian apparition, but one that the story, the message uh, really re that has impacted you. My, um, you know, uh, a lot of the stories uh, that we have from the ancient church have struck me that way. Uh, the early Marian apparitions, there's the, uh, the, as I mentioned earlier, the, um, uh, to me, the greatest Marian apparition is, is what's revealed to us in the book of Revelation. We have this visionary experience and it's centered upon right there in the middle of the book is this, is this, this vision of, um, of the Blessed Virgin as the um, the Ark of the Covenant in heaven, um, but it doesn't stop there because one of the beautiful uh, uh, traditions from the early church is this this um, this story that that Thomas the Apostle was in India and could not make it or did not make it to the bedside of the Blessed Virgin when she was assumed into heaven, and so she appeared to him there, uh, 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 almost like a Zoom meeting, I guess we'd say today, <laughs> but she appeared to him at a distance, and she left him, you know, uh, a part of her garment um, as a relic, and it was preserved there in India, and eventually found its way to Constantinople, but, but uh, I often think of that story, actually, when I, I pray the words of that hymn about Mother Dear, Pray For Me, while far from heaven and thee, I travel in a fragile bark, because I imagine that Thomas must have said something like that to her. Thomas, who was so far from home, so far from the life he had known and the, the lands he was familiar with in this strange, strange place, trying to evangelize a people who, who resisted him. And he must have felt in, in a special way um, the, the, 
the need for the intercession of the Blessed Virgin Mary. Yeah, how beautiful. I know that there are other traditions that say that Thomas arrived a few days late, and then they opened uh, opened the tomb of Mary, and that's when they realized that she had uh, been assumed body and soul. That's another tradition I've read. Uh, Maximus the Confessor has recourse to that one uh, in his book, The Life of the Virgin. But And then, you know, as you talk about Thomas receiving an apparition of Our Lady, then there's St. James who receives the apparition of Our Lady of the Pillar and uh, yeah. in Spain, and how uh, he was kind of growing faint-hearted because because he wasn't gaining converts, that his missionary zeal was waning, and Mary comes to kind of bolster it. Uh, so you have that little apparition, too. So, so there are so many of these stories. I'm so happy that you brought out, too, Revelation 12. Yeah. In, in Mariological circles, the great controversy, especially with the scripture scholars, is Revelation 12, Mary, and <laughs> they always want to kind of dismiss it. They want to say, no, it's the church. But I really, I, I'm of the opinion that a preferential option should be given to reading it as Mary and all the other ones are to to be kind of seen as secondary. Whereas, you know, people like Brown or Buby, they're going to say, no, you need to see the church as the preferential and then Mary as secondary. But uh, I, I, that's not what I read as I see. And even as we celebrate liturgically, we read it for the assumption. And so, it, you know, if lex, lex orande, lex credende, the law of prayer equals the law of belief, well, then we have to acknowledge that that's Mary uh, in Revelation yes. 12. And the fathers taught that um, that uh, that uh, the fathers always identified Mary with the church and and used Mary as an image of the church. You know, he invoked her as an image of the church. And uh, at, just as all of humanity was contained in our mother Eve, so all of redeemed humanity, all of the church is of our mother Mary. That image of, of the birth from Mary uh, is there in, in the book of Revelation. It's cited by Irenaeus in the mid-100s, and it's continued to our own day. I find Cardinal Newman to be most persuasive um, in, his, um, in his interpretation of the, um, of the, the, the apparition that, that, that John conveys in, um, in the book of Revelation. And of course, you know, th this, this becomes uh, a type, it becomes a model that's, that's played out again and again in the times of the fathers. Um, you know, you mentioned some of the very early apparitions, and they continue um, with uh, Gregory the Wonder Worker, with Theophilus of Alexandria, with, um, with so many of the, of the fathers of the church um, who had apparitions of the Blessed Virgin Mary, Gregory the Great a little bit later, and all of these apparitions anticipated a time of great event. So, because we're living in a time of such amazing apparitions, like Fatima, you know, we're following upon Fatima, for example, and, and, and others, I believe that we're living right on the cusp of a time of great evangelization, because... That's what Our Lady does. She comes forward first. She's the advance guard, and she empowers the the evangelization that takes place through the ministry of Gregory the Wonder Worker, Gregory the Great, and so many others down through history. 
That's great. And, you know, I'm actually writing a book right now in St. Louis de Montfort. So that's why I might insert Louis de Montfort a lot into conversations. I've read a lot of him. But he's when he talks, he always talks about the age of Mary and how uh, Mary ushers in Jesus and all these things. And so uh, really getting at what you're saying. And uh, yeah, what a great conversation. Now, I know that you've been a travel. You've traveled all throughout the country, probably we could say the world as well, as you've given talks and everything like that. And I'm sure that in your travels, maybe you've encountered different Marian shrines. Yes, some to apparitions, but then other just devotional shrines. I live in Wisconsin, so I always think of Holy Hill, the National Shrine of Mary, Help of Christians, for example. Not an apparition, but a devotional shrine. People go and they pray there. There's Our Lady of Consolation in Cary, Ohio, for example. Is there a shrine to Mary that you've made that's left an impression, or is there a shrine to Mary that you visited that's left an impression on you? Oh, they all have, you know, in uh, in the Holy Land and in Ephesus and in Rome, in so many places. But um, but I, I have to say that the the best experience was in Ephesus uh, because that's the period I'm most interested in uh, the the um the 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 fourth and fifth centuries. And so uh, I was. <laughs> It, you know, in Ephesus, the tour guides uh, are, are, you have to be a licensed tour guide in order to speak. And they, they, they really frown upon um, anyone else. They, they really, uh, many of the tour guides will, will put out um, uh, a storyline that's kind of hostile to Christianity. It's a Muslim state. And so, um, so it's not exactly warm to the Christian record. Uh, so anyway, I was having a private conversation with one of the one of my fellow pilgrims at the site of the Council of Ephesus, and I obviously was getting so excited, so enthusiastic in my conversation with with this this fellow pilgrim that our Muslim tour guide actually called me over and asked me if I would if I would just repeat all that for the benefit of the crowd. Oh wow. So, so that was great. Just to be there at the site of the Marian Council was an exciting moment for me. And the story of Ephesus and the home of Mary there in Turkey uh, really comes alive because of the the mystic visionary Kath- Anne Catherine Emmerich and how she saw it and and how then this you know wealthy benefactress uh, uh, helps to search for the house and they find it and everything like that and so it's just such a beautiful story about finding the home of Mary uh, in the Catholic tradition and knowing that that's one of the places where the devotion to Mary really thrives and comes out for the early church yes I have a friend who's a scholar of the Dead Sea Scrolls and he told me that there is so much in uh, in the uh, in the in the visions of Anne Catherine Emmerich that she could not have known because they they were not known uh, generally until the the excavation at Qumran uh, that turned up all of these documents. So I believe that there's still much more to be found, you know, based on what we see in her revelations and based on how her revelations have been borne out by subsequent archaeological discoveries, I believe that we're going to discover so much more about the early church in the centuries to come. Is there a book about the Blessed Mother that you could recommend to people, beside your own book, of course? (laughs) Oh, my. Um, There are so many wonderful books on the Blessed Mother, and of course, when you write a book like this, you've had to had to plow through them all. Um, I I love um, uh, uh, Goodness, where do I begin? 
um, uh, uh, I love the the work of Luigi Gambaro, um, and uh, and I love his his books because they give you the primary texts of the Church and from the Middle Ages uh, about the Blessed Virgin Mary. So you can you can see the evidence yourself and make of it what you will. He does help you to uh, integrate it into an understanding of history, Christian history, but he gives you the text and he lets you make your own judgment. So I'd say that that his two volumes on Mary in the early church and uh, Mary in the Middle Ages are, um, are, are a wonderful uh, aid to devotion and, and helping us see the consistency of Marian piety down through the ages, even as it develops. Most definitely. Those are treasured works, and I've used them in my own writing and research as well. And the last question of the Marian Profile is a favorite Marian song, and you've already quoted a verse of a Marian song, so maybe it's that one. But, you know, when you go to Mass on a Marian feast day, like the Immaculate Conception or Mary, Mother of God, the Assumption, is there a Marian song you hope that the, that the choir will sing? I, I love Hail Holy Queen. I love Hail Holy Queen. I even love the version in Sister Act, and sometimes it runs through my head in that, that version from Sister Act. It's a it's such a beautiful melody. It's such a beautiful ancient prayer that's been uh, cast in modern language that's memorable, memorable as poetry. Um, so I'd say that's my favorite. <laughs> yeah, you know, with that song, Hail Holy Queen, I always hope that that will be the closing song at my funeral mass. You know, I just, Every time I hear it, and I hear those words, all creation echoing salve, you know, it just uh, just touches and warms my heart. So yeah. um, even there's a verse in one of the, the missiles, you know, there's different variations of the song, but it's like, when our life breath leaves us, yeah. oh, Maria. Um, and then it goes on. But, you know, those are just lines of songs that just really uh, touch me deeply. Well, Mike, I'd like to thank you so much for joining me today. The pleasure was all mine to be able to speak with you about History's Queen, exploring Hi. Mary's pivotal role from age to age. People can get it from Ave Maria Press, from the publisher directly, or wherever else you buy your books, maybe from a local Catholic bookstore. But if people want to learn more about you and the work that you do, Mike Aquilina, where can they do that? Uh, go online to fathersofthechurch.com, fathersofthechurch.com. And to the listeners, if you don't know anything about the Fathers of the Church, I'd highly encourage you to, to learn about these early writings of Christianity and how they've impacted our belief to the present day. So, And Mike is a great teacher of the Fathers, and you can find many of his books. If they wanted just to get an introduction to the Church Fathers, which of your writings would you recommend? The Fathers of the Church. Uh, and, uh, it's uh, it's it's in its third edition now. It's a um, textbook. I did write it originally uh, to be read by my son, who was in junior high at the time. So I think, actually, that's why it succeeded as a seminary textbook, because it really does meet people where they are. Sure. So The Fathers of the Church. And um, so is that put up by Ignatius Press? Am I remembering that right? Our Sunday Visitor. Or Our Sunday Our Visitor. Sunday. Okay, yeah. so go find it and uh, learn about some of these great 
early thinkers of the church. So thanks so much for your time today, Mike Aquilina. I really enjoyed our conversation too, and I hope our listeners will too as well. So thank you and God bless you. And thanks for having me. Thanks for your hospitality. You have been listening to the podcast, How They Love Mary. I hope that this podcast has either been the beginning or the deepening of your Marian devotion. You can follow me, Father Edward Looney, on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram at the handle at FR Edward Looney. If you don't mind, please leave a review of this podcast. Please rate it on Apple Podcasts on whatever platform you listen. Share this podcast also on your social media if you don't mind. Until next time, let's remain united in prayer to Jesus through Mary. God bless. Mm-hmm.